Hello, everybody. Uh, today is, I don't even know, was it 23rd, 24th? Something like that. Uh, today is uh, Wednesday. This is the Promotional Bar Practice live chat. My name is Luke Thomas, and this is the uh, chat, of course, on MMAfighting.com. Thank you for joining me today. I greatly appreciate it. We're slowly getting back to normal after the travel week that was last week, so appreciate everyone's patience. I know it was late getting the stuff up on iTunes, and I still haven't gotten up Monday Morning Analyst, which itself was late, and we're coming together. Um, we've got four people on vacation on staff this week, so it's just a it's a lot. It's a lot to deal with. So, um, But we're going to write the ship, and we're going to make it sail forward. Today on the podcast, put this a little bit this way. Today on the podcast, we will talk about um, Jose Aldo's injury, what it means for UFC 189, what could potentially happen with Conor McGregor. We'll talk about, of course, what happened last week. So you have Ioana and Jacek uh, just disfiguring Jessica Penny. We can talk about that. We can talk about just to Kimbo Slice versus Ken Shamrock and the ratings and Michael Chandler and Pitbull and yada, 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 all that stuff. Uh, and then, of course, you can't forget, first of all, there's a Bellator show on Friday, which is kind of weird. Um, Pat Curran's on the card. Joe Schilling's on the card. And then Congo versus Volkov in the main event. So that's there. Then on Saturday, you have Romero versus Jacare, excuse me, Romero versus Machida at UFC Fight Night 70 down in Florida. So a lot. There's a lot going on. There's always a lot going on, but there's a really a lot going on right now here on the Promotional War Practice live chat. So as you know, best place to get your questions in is on MMAfighting.com where this little window is embedded. If you would give this window a thumbs up, uh, I'd be hugely appreciative of that. And of course, I don't have... Um, Normal diet soda, as you can see in the closet behind me, because this is the most amazing set in the world. I have uh, my wife left this. She drinks Sprite Zero, I guess. Not often, pretty rarely, but it was in the fridge. So here we go. That sound, of course, means, ooh, Jesus. <laughs> God, that is, whoop, that is bad. Um, if you'd be so kind as to share this on Twitter, this link here, or the link to the MMA Fighting Post, uh, share it on Twitter, share it on Facebook, social media, um, you know, do the Jeff Glover donkey guard, take someone down and show them the video, whatever you got to do, uh, let folks know about it. Your chat as much as it is mine, and I need your help in spreading the word um, in as much as I have my own responsibility to help share it. Okay, with that, um, kicking things off, let's get this thing going, shall we? All right, first question. Well, there is a lot to get to. Damn. First question. So, the real money effect of injuries. The amount of money that is on the line is unreal. From the UFC standpoint, they already dropped millions of dollars into marketing Aldo versus McGregor. Does it make sense for them to put an interim belt on the line and risk McGregor losing now? From McGregor's standpoint, he's already spent a lot of money preparing for July 11th. What happens if the fight is canceled? McGregor just eats the financial loss. If this is the case, why on earth should fighters ever risk spending money like this to prepare for fights? When Melendez was asked why he didn't fly to Mexico in advance to prepare for the Alvarez bout, he said it would financially make sense. Excuse me, it wouldn't financially make sense to do so, especially when fights don't always happen. Boy, it's a great, great question. Truly, I believe um, you guys know I've hammered the uh, oversaturation argument quite a bit, and I'm not here to have a debate about um, that anymore, but I think no matter what your view on that is, 
I think we can all agree that we are just now beginning to wrap our heads around this injury problem, which is to say not how to fix it, but the scale of it. Because I think that we often look at injuries and we say, oh, man, uh, I was looking forward to that fight. It'll happen later. Or, dang, uh, uh, my Saturday is a bit of a disappointment. And then you begin to think about it and you're like, man, you know what? That card's not quite as good as it once was. And then you begin to think about it after, say, three or four months, and you begin to inventory all the injuries. And you say, wow, man, like we missed out on a lot. And then you think about it after a year or two when you really have a chance to look at it and you say, okay, this is so bad and so pervasive a problem and so and so um, longstanding that it's beginning to affect the way in which people make decisions, right? Think about it. If you didn't have the same injury problem, would you ever second guess the UFC wanting to put this much money behind Aldo versus McGregor, right? They did the world tour and the commercials and all the inventory they buy on cable TV and all the other things that they had to pay for. You look at that and you say, well, of course you would do that. This is arguably the biggest fight of the year, certainly the biggest fight in featherweight history. Why would you not invest that money? But now we don't really do that. We look at it and we say, look, I know it's a big fight. I know it's a historic fight in some ways. Does it really make a lot of sense to go all in? When you begin to get stage fright about proper investment, that's when you know the problem, is, the rot on this is deep. It is deep. And now you take a look on the different side of things, and I think that what what uh, Melendez is talking about is not just an injury issue. You know, he was saying, you know, for me to go to Mexico in advance and do things properly to have a dietitian out there and to bring sparring partners of the right kind and to have housing and to pay for all their food and to pay them because they ain't coming for free and all those sorts of things and to do it with enough of a window to then maximize performance for Mexico City, that would just be really prohibitively expensive. To me, that's also a fighter pay issue. Um, now, we know that Melendez has that contract that he leveraged against um, UFC with Bellator within the revenue area to get it. But I think even generally what you're talking about is you're asking so much of someone to compete in Mexico City on those terms. I mean, he's fighting Eddie freaking Alvarez. He wasn't fighting some chump, right? To do all those things properly is, is very prohibitively expensive, only compounded by the fact that he could spend all that money and then, then Eddie Alvarez could just get injured the week of the fight, two weeks before the fight, you know? Slip on a banana peel, slip, just zig when supposed to zag, cut himself, you know, whatever the case may be. Any of those things can just derail everything. Everything hinges on just your ability to zig when you're supposed to zag, or, your, or I should say your lack of ability. That is scary. That is scary. That is so scary. But if you're the UFC, what are you supposed to do? Like, you can't just live in this world where... You know, you're constantly in this precarious state. you got to invest in the big fights. And you got to put the fights together that people want to see. And you need to have the big uh, uh, moments. And not only do you need to have the big moments, you need to advertise the big moments well in advance. Like, this, like if there's any lesson about the last year is that, look, people will watch MMA on a Saturday night. They're just channel flipping. If it's UFC, and maybe they recognize a couple of names, you know. You won't do amazing ratings, but for Fox Sports 1 purposes, you'll do good enough. Okay. But that doesn't really move the sport in a way that I think appeals to fans in general. It doesn't create historic moments. And I think the UFC thinks better of themselves, as they should, that we can create big things. And when you have big things, you have to put big things around them. You can't stop doing that. That's where, that's where, that's where you know, uh, 
fight sports is really at its best, if you ask me. It's not, you know, look, Kimbo Slice and Ken Shamrock are good for getting ratings, I think, no matter what your opinion about them and Bellator, you can all kind of agree on that. But to create this sort of like truly memorable moments of history, of significance, of gravity, and also of commercial uh, appeal to all the stakeholders involved, it has to be this giant thing uh, sometimes. And, you know, the, the most important featherweight fight of all time, which is kind of what this is, um, if you're not going to do it then, when are you going to do it? So look, man, I don't know what the answer is. Certainly they have talked about making, um, you know, spreading best practices with these two companies that they had announced on that PED uh, presser uh, of helping to not only train fighters how to train smarter, but also train uh, trainers how to train better. And I think that's all good and well. I don't believe that's really going to help that much in a measurable way. I think that there has to be a culture change about guys learning the hard way and um, figuring things out for themselves until a fighter who just is going out there and just, you know, and just knuckling up with everyone because he's 25 years old and he thinks that his body will last like this forever and doesn't realize that this eventually has a cost that you'll, you will feel um, until that person is either forced to do differently or has some kind of personal epiphany, I have a hard time believing they'll stop training the way they are. Because if you're looking at this and you're that guy, you're saying, if I don't train this way, my opponent will. And then you constantly run into these problems. MMA is hard to train properly. Uh, Gustafson lost the fight. Was it two fights ago, three fights ago when he got the, uh, when he got the eye cut? You know, uh, ribs are, you know, they're not hard to break. I mean, they're not easy to break, but they're not hard to break. Um, you can twist an ankle. Um, your toes can get caught in between the mat. That happened to me about a month ago. Toe pushing off on a guard pass. Toe got caught in the mat. <laughs> Hurts like an MFR. Hurts like an MFR. Uh, my wife broke her toe the same way, doing the same exact thing. That joker turned purple, you know. And I'm not saying you can't hide some of this stuff. Fighters often do. But I guess what I'm just pointing out is this is a sport that is really, really hard to train. You know, it's just really hard to train. You don't have feet protection like you do in wrestling. And, yeah, you wear headgear. But, um, you know, to train properly, you have to use all different kinds of equipment that can't protect you from cuts. And you have to attack all – I mean, MMA is about attacking a person – in as many different ways as possible. That puts your body under incredible stress, both as the attacker and as the person being attacked. And so um, I, 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 I don't know what the short-term answer is. Some camps seem to be wising up about what the long-term ramifications are here. Guys like Pettis seems to be thinking, like, i got to do things differently. You know, but, like, for example, Patricio Friday's camp last week told me they had really ramped down on the sparring because he's been through a lot. They wanted to make sure that he got a lot of technique in, a lot of cardio in, a lot of stretching in, a lot of recovery in, some sparring, obviously, but as much as used to. And I wonder if he thinks that might have held him back because he came out a little bit slow, you know. Maybe he feels it was great, but I was watching him. He looked a little bit soft in terms of the physicality and, um, obviously he won a tremendous fashion cause he's a champion level fighter, but you get the idea. Like, will he say to himself, this was the optimal way to do things. I don't know. It's tough, man. It's really, really tough. And I don't know what the answer is. Uh, Aldo injury. Someone says, I just knew it was too good to be true. Or is it, do you think Aldo will be given the all clear to fight at UFC 189? And if not, what do you think the UFC will do? I have a hard time seeing how he will uh, get the all clear. If you've ever had a rib injury, it's hard to turn. It's hard to move. It's hard to breathe. Um, a cracked rib 
is just you can't expand your chest. It's just it's just the worst. It's the worst. So, you know, I don't know. And, and folks have talked about well, you know, what if his what if his camp hadn't concealed it, or excuse me, what if his camp had concealed it, and he'd been able to, um, you know, make it through the commission test because now the commission knows about this and they're going to look at it and they're looking at excuse me, they're going to look at it and they're going to say. Um, are you really good to go? Give us an x-ray. Do we see a crack in there? If so, you know, no chance. So there's just a lot of moving parts about that, about even if he wants to continue, about whether or not the people in power will let him. Um, so that's a problem. But I, I have a hard time seeing it go through. Just the nature, I mean, again, you, you twist your ankle, you can, you can tape it up. You break your toe, you can tape it up. You break your fingers, you can tape it up. If you get cut out far in, in advance, you can, you know, put stitches on it and then glue it and then kind of hide it. Or, you know, there's just, there are certain things you can hide. But I guess if you're a fan, what you have to ask yourself is not whether necessarily Aldo will be able to make it to the fight. The question is, do you want an Aldo that is a, a cheap facsimile of himself? Because if you get an Aldo fighting on a cracked rib, you're just not getting the best Aldo. If 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 he is cleared to fight, I'm just it's easy for me. I'm just going to bet on McGregor. Not bet, but I'm going to do my predictions for McGregor because it was close before. I think you could make a credible case either way. But an Aldo with a broken rib, Conor McGregor is going to target it. Um, Aldo is going to have cardio issues. He's not going to be able to move the same way, and his movement, I think, is key. If he's going to beat McGregor, his movement is key to doing that, side to side, staying on his horse, getting in and out with his jab, leg kicking, and then circling out under the hook. Like All of those things are going to be absolutely critical for him, and all of that is going to be affected by a rib. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's terrible. It's terrible. So um, I just have a hard time seeing it go through. If it does go through, betting on McGregor is easy money at that point. And um, that's why I just don't believe they're going to do that. What I think they're going to do is they're going to postpone it because you have poured all of this money into this fight. And look, I'm not saying that McGregor versus Aldo doesn't sound entertaining. Oh, excuse me, McGregor versus um, Mendez, for example, or Edgar. These are all fights we want to see. These are all fights you will get a chance to see. Even if he loses McGregor, he will eventually fight those guys. And if he wins, he's definitely going to fight those guys. The, his his turn of the screw is coming. We've talked about this before. Whether you think he will go in there and blow these people out or whether you think he will go in there and be exposed. Conor McGregor's turn of the screw is coming against uh, Chad Mendez, against uh, Frankie Edgar, maybe depending on how things go, Ricardo Lamas. He's going to get his. Or maybe he's going to show us he's amazing. But it's coming. It's coming. Doesn't matter if he wins or loses against Jose Aldo. One way or the other, those fights are going to happen. So, for me, um, you have all this ad inventory saved up, uh, or you've spent, excuse me, you have all this promotional material you've invested. That's the fight people want to see. And to the point of the previous question, is there any guarantee that that will matter if they reschedule it? Maybe it won't. Maybe Aldo gets injured again. Maybe McGregor gets injured this time. It, it, it's just so hard to say. But if you're going to let the idea of injuries stop you from doing business, you shouldn't be in this business. You just kind of have to live with it. Now, you have to figure out a way to, to mitigate it if you can. But if you're going to let, from, from the UFC's perspective, I think, fighters have to make, I think, more calculated choices about their money. But if you're the UFC and you're investing in this stuff, you, you can't stop for injuries. I don't think that you can just ignore them. So, right, I think you have to have backup plans. I've talked about 
whether you buy the oversaturation issue or not, stacking cards helps. It won't fix the problem, but I think it will certainly be a return to the customer. That even like if you're a customer and you're thinking about buying a UFC, let's say you're flying out to Vegas, not so much necessarily for 189, but let's say some sort of future card, and the entire main card is stacked. And hey, there's four fights on the let's say the Fox Sports preliminary card. All four of those are stacked. You can take or leave the fight pass portion, but you're like, wow, we got great main, great co-main. Um, I at least like two other fights on the main card. I like all four uh, in some capacity, either from the, the two fighters themselves or at least one fighter in each of the four fights on the Fox Sports card. I don't care so much about the Fight Pass card necessarily, but it's preliminary anyway, and uh, it's Vegas. No one's going to be there. So, hey, I want to invest in this. You at least know as a customer if a couple of these fall out, you'll, you'll be fine. Now, any card can be ravaged, but, you know, it's just an insurance policy against that. Um, so maybe that's that's – I wouldn't say a benefit necessarily to um, to the injury epidemic, but what I would say is it's you know it doesn't make it an aggregate loss; it makes it a net loss, so that there is still some sort of quote unquote benefit uh, to it. But in any event, um, I don't see them creating an interim title unless he's out longer than three months. If he gets injured again, then they'll definitely. I mean, but you know, he's the only UFC featherweight champion ever. They're going to give him every benefit of the doubt. And if you strip him of the title, an eventual Aldo-McGregor meeting, even if McGregor holds the title, I guess that would still have a lot of value. But you want to keep the dynamic you have in place. You want to see Aldo, if he's going to assert himself as the all-time great that we think him to be, beating McGregor holding the title is the way you want to do that. If McGregor's going to take the title, you, that's that's what you want. It's like if, if McGregor's going to be your champion, you want him to take it from Aldo. That's how you want that to go down. I'm not saying that they couldn't sell Aldo being out from injury, being stripped in the interim. McGregor beats, I don't know, let's say Mendez for the uh, vacant interim title. And then there's this sort of a unification thing or um, or they strip them all together and they make him the champion or they create an interim title. Whatever the case, it's not the same as Aldo holding the title and McGregor going and taking it from him. That That is the dynamic you're looking for. That's That's where it exists. That's the specialness right there. And so the more you move away from that, either by stripping him or creating creating an interim title, you begin to tinker with something that I think um, they don't want to tinker with. So I think they're just going to bite the bullet. I think it sucks, unfortunately, for all the parties involved, from the consumer up to the people who are uh, in charge of this. But if Aldo goes through, I just don't see how you can possibly pick him to win that fight. I wouldn't pick Aldo to beat most guys in that division with a rib injury, much less Conor McGregor. It's just so, so debilitating. Holy crap, that is... Wow. Mm, I can barely swallow that. So someone says, at what point will Nova Unyao accept that their gym is not doing things the right way? So then you have uh, UFC 125, Jose Aldo pulled out due to injury. UFC 149, Aldo pulled out due to injury. UFC 153... Aldo pulled out due, due to injury. 176, Aldo pulled out due to injury. 170, uh, excuse me, 189, rumored to be pulling out. And I read somewhere else that, uh, aggregately speaking, Novo Uniao has an issue as one of the more uh, injury-prone gyms in um, in the world for elite world-class gyms. Yeah, it's a problem. It's a problem. Again, the, the key nature of this, though, is, and I've talked about this before, and I've and people have emailed me about it, but... No one has emailed me that can uh, certainly well-intentioned, smart people have emailed me. I don't want to say otherwise. But what I've talked about before is wanting to do a study on injuries. Because what I think you would have to do 
is you have to spend time in a camp, like three to six months in a camp, um, and then go to every single camp, a.k.a. Nova Lineau, ATT, Jackson's, TriStar, you name it. And you just go and you watch. And you have to be privy to confidential information and to see how many injuries guys get, how they get them, what is the commonality of the nature of the injuries. I mean, we can sort of glean some information from the outside looking in anyway. But I think until you do a really, truly comprehensive look at it about who's getting injured and why and what scenarios, you just don't really know what the best solution could be. Obviously, sparring could be a problem. But, you know, I talked to Dean Lister one time about getting rid of injuries. We were having a conversation about heel hooks and whether they were uniquely dangerous and to what extent and, and why they were, you know, not more fully embraced by the larger jiu-jitsu community. Obviously, high-level guys use them pretty well. And you see guys like Eddie Cummings tearing people to pieces with them. But um, his argument was training heel hooks. I And this is his argument. I have seen more people get injured doing takedowns than doing heel hooks. And he said he points to the fact that you see a lot of jujitsu schools, they'll start sparring sitting or on their knees or something, you know. And he goes, that has a couple of problems. One, it makes guys less good at takedowns. But two, um, yeah, you know, they're, they're trying to cut down on injuries. Like, that's what they're trying to do because takedown battles can be so bad. You can get a guy who crashes on top of another one. You can get a guy who posts a hand and then breaks his wrist. I've seen that personally. You can get guys who get slammed and then something happens to their back, a la Joe Riggs, or, you know, it's just a, it's a problem. And you, like, takedowns are a critical component of mixed martial arts. So what are you going to do? You're going to stop training that? So this is one when people talk about, like, what ways can we do to, re- to reduce injuries? You can't stop doing takedowns, but are there ways you can train them better? Or are takedowns really a problem? Is it not that at all? Is it is it something else altogether? Um, we don't really know. We don't really know. We haven't had really the kind of comprehensive evaluation that I think is required to get the sort of drilled down, deep understanding of the problem. Um, obviously, some things, you know, cutting down on sparring and things like that, how, how could that not help? But, you know, just telling guys to cut down on sparring, I, absent some kind of, you know, deeper information, I, I just don't know. Someone says, McGregor versus, question mark, with McGregor being considered a replacement for Aldo on a few reports I've seen, what fight actually will answer more questions, especially if McGregor won? Aldo is seen as a good style matchup for Conor, but everyone thinks Edgar the wrestler is not. Let's say McGregor versus Edgar is the replacement fight. If McGregor wins, is it a more significant win than it would be against Aldo? It's an interesting question and a very good one. What I would submit to you is, um, so we've talked about this a little bit before on this chat. If McGregor beats Aldo, it's a big if, but let's just say it happens. You know, what is the likely path to victory? The likely path to victory is if you've ever seen McGregor in person, he's huge for a featherweight, absolutely mammoth for a featherweight. Um, he's got big power, strong, and it would be his the size of his reach and the power, and the movement, right? So those things combine, either cutting off the ring, evasively maneuvering around, showing different looks that folks weren't anticipating, landing shots as a consequence, and then, of course, because he's so big, when they land, they land with such authority, right? That, that's basically what you think would be the way to win. Um, if you were able to beat Jose Aldo, 
that would still tell us a lot about Conor McGregor. It would probably tell us he's the hardest puncher in that division. It might tell us about uh, Jose Aldo's decline from injuries and um, his time in the sport, or it may not. You need, it, it would obviously depend on the complexion of the fight. But there were, there would be things to be gleaned. But I think if McGregor were able to go in there and beat uh, Edgar, it would tell you more, or at least it would tell you different things Right, if he can stop stuff a shot, or if he gets taken down immediately, gets back up, or if he's just battering Edgar on the feet, that would tell you a lot about how he stacks up against the rest of the division. But if he beats Edgar, right, if if Aldo is removed from the fight and McGregor fights Edgar, that might tell you a lot of the things that are currently unknowns. It wouldn't tell you that he could beat Aldo. I think that's the difference. And folks might say it would. They would go back and they would watch Aldo versus McGregor, and they would say, well, look what Connor did differently here, and isn't this better? Maybe. I, I, I'm not I'm not so sure that McGregor, uh, excuse me, that Aldo really gave 100% in that fight, and he still kind of won rather easily. So I don't know exactly what that means. That That's the only thing I would say. I think that if McGregor fought Edgar, that's a mouthful, and beat him, stuffing takedowns, pumping the jab, doing all the things that you either know he can or believe he could, it would tell you a lot about what we don't know about him. But I think ultimately there would still be a real lingering question about whether or not it could beat Aldo. If he just goes and straight up beats Aldo, you know, um, I'm not sure that tells you necessarily they can beat Chad Mendez, but it just gives him a certain gravitas at that point that um, it, it still wouldn't be the same kind of, ling- I don't know if it would still be the same kind of lingering question. Maybe it wouldn't be. I think this is sort of the point, though, generally. It's like no matter which way McGregor goes, the way he's been built, and, you know, the dust, again, we all know his record. The Poirier fight was, you know, um, you know clean sweep in many ways. Uh, in- incredible performance by him. But it just sort of shows that it doesn't matter what he does here. If he beats the featherweight champion or the former lightweight champion, we still have questions unanswered about his overall ability. Um, and I think that it tells you a lot about the way in which he was um, not promoted exactly, but brought through the ranks, that there is going to be these lingering, if not doubts, just uncertainties about about where his ability begins and ends. True or false? Fighter injuries have been easily the biggest Achilles heel of MMA for growth of the sport. I don't know about easily, but certainly a huge component. UFC is going to be more careful on spending a million dollars for a commercial like Aldo versus McGregor. I'm going to say false because that's not their MO, but but maybe. Kimbo is a bigger star than Machida. This is a painful pill to swallow. Um, could Machida do nearly three million people, two and a half to three million people on Spike? Maybe. Maybe if he fought Ken Shamrock, maybe. But part of me feels like... Uh, Kimbo might be bigger. Not, not, I mean, obviously not even close to the same level of martial artist or uh, a figure of adoration for, for hardcore fans. I'm not saying that, but um, you know, just who, who who do people know more? Yeah. Um, UFC 189 does under 350,000 buys if McGregor is off the car. True. Bellator's success with Kimbo versus Shamrock and Ortiz versus Bonner is the main reason the UFC signed CM Punk. 100% true. Nelson Thatch. Hell yeah, dude. 
who wins the matchup? I see Thatch pushing forward, being dominant on the feet. But if Nelson can take him down, I believe his BJJ will be too much for Thatch. And Nelson has the, a good possibility of a submission um, if he can get the back like Henderson. Um, there's another question here. Oh, it's a different one. So, um, yeah, I love this fight. Gunnar Nelson is in need of a rebound after not looking so great against Rick Story. Um, we all know his grappling credentials are phenomenal. His wrestling's not bad. I like his sideways stance a little bit, at least for its novelty. Obviously, those are things he's going to need to work on. Thatch, a little bit more conventional, a little bit quicker pace to the way he executes offense. I think a little bit bigger, a little bit stronger. Um, a little bit more likes to exchange in the pocket. A little bit more risk-taking. So you've got two really contrasting styles about inside versus outside work and and where both like to finish and win. Um, I don't know who I favor. Both guys coming off of loss. Both guys have a lot of ability. I have to think a little bit more about it. I'm probably going to lean. Gosh, I have to go back and watch the Henderson fight, but um, I'll probably lean Thatch early, Nelson late, maybe Thatch overall. Don't hold me to that, but that's a great fight. Great matchmaking. There is very little to dislike about that. Someone say uh, Jonas Bilharino, who is Aldo's sparring partner. As you may or may not know, Jonas Bilharino is a Team Nagara fighter imitating the style of McGregor for Aldo. I did know that. After watching a few clips of his, Schaub said that he is favoring Aldo, seeing as Bilharino can imitate McGregor so well. Also, Rogan went on to say he has better kicks than McGregor and that many people in the know believe he could possibly beat McGregor at this stage in his career. What do you make of these claims at a five foot eleven featherweight? And do you see him having a bright future in the UFC? I'm asking this as many people in a YouTube comment section were discouraging these claims. Okay, I hope you hear yourself. Let me do one thing real quick. There we are. Can you hear me? Okay, good. Well, whenever the sentence was, I was checking out the comments in a YouTube. I mean, there's some people on YouTube on this very video who are cool people, and you know who you are. Shouts to y'all, thumbs up. But there's a lot of donks, so I'm not sure exactly what that means. Um, yeah, Bilirino is a very talented guy, and I've seen some of the videos of him imitating him. I'm sure that the McGregor team would um, take some issues with it. I don't think he's nearly the same physical kind of presence that McGregor is. I don't think he... He hits nearly as hard. He hits in different ways. I think he's a little bit quicker, actually. Um, so I think he'll, you'll eventually see him in the UFC. I'm less concerned about that, sure. But I, I truly believe, unless you've seen McGregor in person, and certainly I think um, you know Rogan and Schaub have, but for me personally, seeing him in person was like, you know, okay, this dude is enormous. I mean, enormous for this weight class. Um, and if he can keep the speed, again, not the same necessarily as this gentleman, but if he can keep some of that speed and all that power or enough of that power, you know, he is, he is a formidable task, formidable task. Let's see. Uh, let's see. Machida versus Romero. How do you see this one going? Um, it's a good question. If Machida is not over the hill, I'd like him to win. I think the lingering question for me is whether he is. It, it, just based on the way he looked against um, Luke Rockhold, you know, I think 
what was the prevailing narrative heading into that fight? Man, this is a hard one to pick, you know? You could see people going the, the Machida way. You could see people going the Rockhold way. And he just got, he just looked so ineffectual, you know? I think that was what the most surprising component was, was just how ineffectual he looked. And so for me, it's, yes, he has preserved his body. No, he's not taken, I mean, he's taken some damage, obviously, in the Shogun fights and, and other fights as well. But, you know, relative to some of his peers, he's able to compete later into his 30s because he hasn't taken as much damage, that sort of thing. Um, if he is still as spry as we think he might be, I think working on the outside, I don't necessarily trust Romero's footwork to corner him, to have him consistently backing up. Um, Romero likes big lunging punches, which will give Machida space to counter. Um, I don't know that Romero has the right answer for the blitzes. Certainly he can get a takedown, but I like Machida to be able to stand back up. I like Machida's guard. I don't know that Romero will be able to keep him there for very long. So I definitely favor Machida with the caveat that I'm talking about the Machida that we thought was headed into the Luke Rockhold fight, not the one we kind of saw coming out of it. So was that a temporary thing? Was it a permanent thing? We're going to find out. But, you know, I've, I I just wonder about some of those Shogun fights, um, about what the Weidman fight did to him, about his advanced age at this point. We'll see. So I'm going to lean Machida, but it's a little bit weird. Uh, okay. I mean, I've kind of discussed this one before, but all right, whatever. Dear Luke, severity is a subjective thing, I suppose. Uh, depending on how often you like a fight, a three-year punishment will be more or less harsh. Okay. But I do not understand how you can look at the situation, talking about uh, Alexander Shlomenko, and come to the conclusion that Shlomenko is the victim. His TE ratio was 50 to 1. This isn't some college kid who was induced into taking unknown substances by a shady trainer. It's entirely possible that Melvin Manhoff sustained long-term damage from that back fist. The casual link between the damage he suffered and the PEDs and Stromenko system is not so remote that it can simply be ignored. I am not saying that once you establish guilt, all punishment is fair game. But to talk about a three-year ban like it's cruel and unusual seems insane to me. Losing to someone on PEDs can in, in many ways ruin your career, whether it be through injury or a lost opportunity. Some fighters go into deep depression when they lose. Some fighters get cut when they lose. The repercussions can be devastating. So my question is, insane compared to what? Okay, I like this question because it's a good one. So let me ask you a question, too. There's a lot of ways different to look at it. I had said that on Twitter and on my Facebook page that it's not that I thought Shlomenko didn't deserve a fairly serious punishment. It's that I thought three years was sort of ridiculous, uh, and, I, and I maintain that. Um, it's... I, I, I know people think that when I get on here and I say things that I'm in some ways trying to be contrarian. I am not. I can only speak to you about the way in which my brain works. And the truth of the matter is we find consensus a lot more than we don't on matters where we don't. However, I think it's important to talk about the facts. Okay. Um, first of all, do we really think that Shlomenko needed steroids to do what he did to, to Melvin Manhoff? I mean, Manhoff is a guy who, if, if Bellator books him again, um, I'm going to have some serious problems with that, right? Schilling had no issues doing, what, doing things worse in many ways to Manhoff um, and didn't need steroids to do it, right? So this idea that it was uniquely steroids that contributed to, or whatever, the case, whatever he was taking, um, uniquely contributed to what happened to Melvin Manhoff, I think is a 
is, you know, you can't divorce the two, but I think heavily pushing on it is a bit specious too, right? Um, you can easily imagine a scenario in which he had none of that and could have been just fine, uh, or anyone else for that matter. I think, I think two, um, Shlomenko is a first-time offender. He does not have a history of this. If this were a second one, that'd be a different conversation. First time. Third. How old is Shlomenko? He is 31. That means he'll be 30. F- uh, his birthday's in May, so he just turned 31. That means his birthday, he'll, uh, he'll be able to come back when he's 34. Um, it's probably not the end of his career, but it very well could be. So you mean to tell me for a first-time offense against a guy who has um, an inability to take a shot, your first-time offense is probable banning from the sport, like ending your career? That that seems justified to you? That seems deeply disproportionate to me. And I think there's another problem here that underlies all of this. And I've talked about it before, and it's not an argument that many people are comfortable with making. Folks have asked me, do you think steroids provide a performance-enhancing benefit? Well, yeah. I mean, of course they do. People take them for a reason. I'm not here to tell you otherwise. But to me, I think there's a bit of hysteria that is clouding our judgment on this issue. And I know I'm in my minority, and I think this will take a long time to prove my argument, because I think what's going to happen is that there is is a bit of hysteria around punishment right now where folks are out for vengeance and they've got this fevered idea about harsher punishment means more effectiveness, which I'm not sure is true. And so they're going to have to do damage to a lot more people's careers before we decide that this is um, this is a bit too much. I mentioned this on the MMA beat once that, you know, everyone talks about, well, this isn't baseball. You're not hitting a ball. You're hitting another guy in the head. Again, certainly uh, performance enhancing drugs work. They provide a benefit to people. But the question is, what is the benefit? Right. What, what is the benefit? Um, and to me, or rather not some, okay, let's talk about the danger. People say, you know, this is super dangerous. And of course you can just imagine the bad headlines. If something traumatic were to happen to someone and, um, you know, it was determined that their opponent had been using steroids or something like that. You can imagine how devastating that would be. I understand brands having to protect their, themselves. Okay, I get, I get it. I'm not saying I, you know, steroid you should just go unpunished. I think what I am saying is, since 1993 up until next month, we've had what I think most people would consider fairly lax, unimaginative testing, and yet we're able to brag about MMA's safety record. If you look at the majority of uh, any kind of incident, it's almost exclusively at the amateur level, which is not regulated. To me... If you have properly regulated MMA from a matchmaking standpoint, from a, a natural sort of selection standpoint, in other words, only the best sort of rise to the top, a brand has, like the UFC has incentive to only pick the better guys. Those guys are only able to make it because they not only have skills, they have athleticism and a um, enhanced ability to take damage. I've often talked about that. You see guys who are very, very good. If they can't take a shot, they don't rise to the ranks. Part of what you see when you see these UFC fighters is their ability to take a shot more so than the average person. Um, And so to me, it's like you had this one period where all of this bad stuff was happening and nothing bad happened. 
I'm not arguing that nothing bad will happen. I'm not arguing that brands shouldn't protect themselves. I'm not arguing that Chlamenko doesn't deserve a serious punishment. I, I, I'd be less bothered by 18 months, two years, I could, I guess, live with. Um, it's, it's not that. It's that what exactly is the enhanced risk to your safety and what damage is wrought upon your career by performance-enhancing drug use at a level where you have, you know, randomized testing, not so much the current one the UFC is about to put in there, but the, the one that's at the state right now where, you know, you have Nevada flying people down to, to Brazil and stuff like that. At that level of testing, what is the chances you face someone in a fight um, that has it? What is the enhanced risk as a consequence, both to you and to them? Um, what is their long-term health risk? And then I think the other question is, when you go into a mixed martial arts fight, you accept that there's a certain amount of danger that's possible. You can get chewed up like, you know, Yelena and Jacek. She doesn't take steroids, it appears. She appears to be quite clean, and yet she can do that to someone. So, like, the point being is a fighter will, like Jessica Penny will tell you, well, look, I'm willing to accept that amount of risk um, and that amount of damage because I know I'm fighting a clean opponent, and I respect that, and I think that's entirely fair. I'm not asking this to troll. I'm not, I'm not saying this to like be difficult. I'm just trying to have an honest conversation about it. Um, every fight you go into, you assume a certain amount of risk and it's a very, very, very high level of one. I think steroids put you closer to that risk certainly. And that's problematic. I don't think what it does is it changes the equation where you, it, it, the amount of risk you're under is enormous. Because if it were, we'd see that effect. I think most steroid use under the current system of regulation is for self-preservation. I think someone who is not on the juice can do just as much damage to you as someone who is. I think a lot of it is for injury rehabilitation. Um, and again, I'm not advocating you know, free love on the free love freeway a la David Brent. I am not advocating that. I'm just trying to have an honest conversation. If we're trying to ask ourselves, what risk are you assuming by going into this cage? You are assuming this. Is that risk heightened by steroids? Probably. How much? How much is it, is it, is it, does it rise? You could fight 10 fights in the UFC against all clean guys, and all 10 will shut your lights out and disfigure your face. You know, how much of that would, we, would, would that complexion change if someone were using steroids to heal an ankle injury? someone were using that to get better gains in the weight room, um, to get marginally better punching power, to get a little more cardio for the takedowns to work late into the third round. We often talk about steroids as producing these killing machines that all of a sudden have dramatic punching power. It's not exactly the case. There can be irreparable or certainly irreparable is a strong word. There can certainly be, um, potential, you know, career harm, less so your physical harm. And I think that actually might be the stronger argument than what it does in the cage. But if you're going to tie career harm to the physical harm, I have a little bit of a problem with that. Um, I think the better argument to make is, you know, what does this do to someone's career when they have a loss and the other person was on steroids because they were able to secure that final takedown in the third round that changed the whole equation. Yeah, that's a compelling argument to me. I think that's an argument that makes much more sense than, you know, this guy took steroids and he turned into the Incredible Hulk and was able to, to bulldoze a bunker with a 50 cal gunner you saw in the last Avengers movie hmm. doesn't quite do that. And so I just, I'm trying to have a little bit more of an honest conversation about it. That's all. 
Also, in the case of Manhoof, um, you know, did it irreparably harm, irreparably harm his career? I'm sure it's a level of damage. I wouldn't say otherwise. I wouldn't want to get hit like that. But, you know, we're talking about someone at the tail end of their career. Um, I think all of these factors need to be taken into consideration. God, who should Kimbo fight next? Herschel Walker, Seth Petrozelli, and Bob Sapp. So I don't know if you guys saw the post-fight presser. Someone asked Kimbo, I forget who it was, if he saw that Seth Petrozelli was at the fight, and he goes, no. And then someone goes, would you be willing to fight him again? Kimbo goes, no. So that ain't happening. Um, Bob Sapp, I doubt that happens either. I don't even, could they even fight in the same weight class? And then um, I guess they could do a catch weight. Uh, and then Herschel Walker. Yeah, I think that's probably the likeliest scenario. Or I think they might do a James Thompson rematch. They might do that as well. So we'll see. It's good. It's going to be a donk fest. I mean, they're going to get someone, you know, just, just expect it. All right, UFC and JCJ. Following Yuani and JCJ's performance on Saturday, I've seen a lot of justified praise on it on several MMA sites. Even a couple of analyzers, for whatever reason, still insist on mentioning how Gadelia obviously beat her. But when I saw some divergence on what was, on what, excuse me, I saw some divergence on was what should be next for Jacek. Some thought that she should be kept as a secondary buffer on a Fox car due to her being a woman on a small weight class, and thus there would be a market for her. Others instead argued that due to her insane level of skill, charisma, and highlight reel, I assume most UFC fighters would kill for. UFC should bet on her and try to build her into a superstar within the, within the company. Uh, the two are not exclusive. Uh, yeah, I think putting her on a Fox card, not in a headlining role, because I don't think she's ready for that yet, um, is the appropriate next step. I had no problems putting her on Fight Pass. Um, you know, the petty fight was not one that was hotly anticipated. It wanted to be a bit of a blowout anyway. It's good for, I think, the value of Fight Pass. I don't think all title fights need to always be on pay-per-view. So, like, for me, I had, I had no problems with that. I thought that was exactly the right choice the UFC made. Going forward, though, I think what most people would say is, look, anytime a microphone or camera is on her, she just shines. And what does that mean? That means when she's doing a media day, she says awesome stuff. That means when she's at a weigh-in and there's a camera on her, she gets in the face, you know. And that means when she's in the cage and that camera is on her, she just tears people to pieces. She tears people to pieces, you know. So for me... It's like she does everything right. Every time a fan is looking and not even looking, she's doing everything you could possibly ask of her. She's already captured the imagination, I think, of the really hardest of the hardcore fan base. I think with the right kind of matchmaking and the right kind of opportunities and the more she improves her English, which is already very, very good, she has, you know, I don't, I don't want to know, I don't want to like speculate how big it could be, but I think there's enough of raw material there to say she's worthy of more investment. She's worthy of wider exposure. This is somebody who we can just rely on her. You can just, you can just rely on her. You know, the Gedalia fight, I don't know. That would be the most awesome thing the second time around. Maybe Gedalia has her way with her. Maybe that was Gedalia's one shot and JJ comes out and just blows the brains or blows her brains out. You know, we'll see. Um, but certainly against everyone else that as far as a rematch or, you know, whatever, um, she just has so much potential. So 
I don't think putting her on a Fox card is in any way burying her, especially if it's the co-main event. I think, um, or, you know, make her the main event, but then have the other three fights, just crazy bonkers action, something to compliment her. Not because I think she can't carry the weight, but because, you know, 115-pound woman, it's not that she doesn't do everything that is asked of her. It's that she's going to have to overcome tremendous institutional biases. You know, the average UFC fan, if you told them, hey, you know who the baddest champion is right now since John Jones is, is gone? It's this 115-pound woman. Most fans are going to look at you sideways. They're going to say, that's not possible. She has to overcome that. And I think for people who don't have those biases, who are true fans of the sport, who can just appreciate skill for when they see it, you can look at her and you get it, Im- you get it immediately. You're like, oh, Jesus, this is something different. And Dana White's out there stumping for her. And so she has a lot going for her. It's just that there are, you know, prejudices are a hard thing to overcome. I don't mean hate. I mean just, you know, people's inherent beliefs about the world and inherent ways of looking at the world. These are very difficult things to change. So, um, and one thing Scott Coker said in my interview with him, if you guys saw it, the longer one that I did, it was, I thought it was a very astute point. It takes a very long time to build a fighter's brand. McGregor has done it in record time, and we're not even done with it yet. In other words, he still has to fight Aldo, and if he beats Aldo and then goes on a title run, who knows how much bigger he could be. It's not even done yet, and it still took years, years to get here. It takes a super long time to build someone brand, uh, someone's brand. So when you get them kind of young and you get them this good, and then they can mouth off to their opponents, and they're creative, and they're weird, and they're kind of psychotic, but in a good way, and they're tremendously talented inside the cage. This is someone you got to invest in. You just have to know what you're also up against. It's just not a matter of investing. You're investing against what? You're investing against people's attitudes about what constitutes greatness or what they want to see or what they can believe a woman can do or what they can believe a 115-pound person can do or do they really care about a Polish person? All of these things you have to, you have to contend with. So, yes, do it. But understand what you're up against and how long it's going to take. I think anything was suspicious of Jose Aldo's discarded samples gate. Um, unusual, yes. Unfortunate, definitely. Not ready to pull the pitchfork out just yet. I feel like with everything that's occurred over the last few days, everyone has forgot uh, Ian Jacek's incredible performance against Penny. The question is now, what does the UFC do with her? Oh, yeah, you already asked this one. Uh, Isn't it a little strange that the news somehow got out so fast about Aldo's injury, but they're saying he still wants to fight? I would think that if he still wanted to fight, they would have made sure that the news of the injury didn't leak. Well, unless he didn't have control over the news, in which case it wouldn't be his choice. Coker interview. Uh, I must say that was a great interview with Coker. Thank you. Was there anything in the interview that you weren't completely satisfied on how he answered? For example, when you mentioned ratings as being the reason Strike Force was sold, well, not exactly the ratings. He spun it in a different way, saying that the investors weren't committed and more or less were about buying and selling companies. Did you fully buy that answer? Here's what I would say. I am prepared to buy it if I ever saw the financials. Um, but you know, I would I would love to see what it was making event over event. I would love to I would love to see that. You know, certainly Showtime 
wanted to be in the business. I think that that tells you a lot. Um, and Scott didn't want to get out. That tells you a lot. Like if everything was getting on fire, maybe they would be a little bit more inclined. But you know, Showtime for years was still looking for MMA um, after Strike Force went down, and they just couldn't find anything that was a suitable replacement. So I actually found him pretty convincing for the most part. You know, I was trying to push him a little bit. Um, but I found most of the answers very good. Again, without the information that I need to make more informed decisions, hard to say, but I, I sort of thought that his cool, calm attitude about the long-term vision of things and how to get there was, was pretty, for the most part, pretty convincing. Mm-hmm. A million pay-per-view buys. Luke, the phrase over a million pay-per-view buys is thrown around. I was just curious what that actually means in revenue. Uh, we'll do the math, you know. Um, a million times 60, something like that. But that is also revenue from just the U.S. market. Now, pay-per-view is uh, North America. I'm discounting uh, uh, Mexico. It's uh, it's just Canada and U.S. And maybe like a handful of the small countries. But basically, hand, it's just those two countries. How do they factor in TV deals in other countries such as the U.K., which don't pay for pay-per-views? It's a subscription base. Yeah, they just they don't measure that event over event they do pay-per-view because they're trying to get money out of the north american market that's why you know putting a pay-per-view fight outside of the pay-per-view market a la ufc 190 is risky people were asking me like how do you think rousey's gonna do a pay-per-view and like there's no doubt she's turning into if she's not already ufc's biggest star far and away but you know even the ufc's biggest star is gonna have a harder time selling a fight in brazil good for brazilian market right good for globo All, all that's all that's fine it's just you got you're serving a couple of masters there that have different priorities and different needs and different market realities that don't always overlap. Um, okay, look, let's say Aldo does fight and loses. We're going to be stuck in a position where Aldo didn't have an injury bad enough to call off the fight, but it will 100% be used as an excuse for why he lost. This sucks. Yeah, which is why he shouldn't fight. I don't think that's very controversial. Um, okay. All right. Not saying the fight was fixed, but why didn't Shamrock put his non-choking hand behind Kimbo's head to lock up the choke? I know he's 51, but I'm a 27-year-old, 280-pound white belt, and I've had plenty of 51-year-olds choke me out. Well, you might have some issues then. <laughs> uh, I tease. But... Um, I've talked about this ad nauseum already. It's in my Monday morning analyst, which folks were bitter about me not talking about NJ check, which is fine. I actually sort of agree with them, but I had to do it. The long and short of it is, let me just say up front, if you're going to believe what you're going to believe, there's nothing else I can say to you. Um, I've made my argument very clear. There is an easy explanation that is quite rational that doesn't require malfeasance or felonies to explain what happened. If you're going to introduce those theories, you are by definition, not up for debate, by definition, you're introducing more complex theories that require an entire framework beyond what you actually saw to explain for which there is no evidence. That does not make it impossible, but it makes it much more unlikely. And typically speaking, not always, but typically speaking, the simplest explanation is is the correct one. So let me just say that up front. As I mentioned in the Monday Morning Analyst, the reason why is because Ken Shamrock, first of all, told me he hadn't grappled in years prior to this camp like years we have no idea what he actually did in camp number that's the first thing um and he says he points to the fact if you go back and watch his uh, his fights which by the way he hadn't fought in years as well um 
they're all stand-up affairs because his body was wrecked and he couldn't move himself into position. And, and uh, so he just decided to bang it out with people. So that's the first thing I would say. Second thing I would say is this idea that he has a reputation as a back taker and choker is just totally wrong. If you actually look at some of his other rear naked choke victories, of which he has none since they introduced gloves, they all had bad technique too. Or not all of them, most of them. There was times where he has, I mentioned on the thing, you have to have it high on the bicep, not low on the bicep. There's one where he had it on the forearm and he's kind of just cranking it. He's a crank guy. He's a, and not just that, he's a limb twister. If he had given up on a heel hook, I'd be a little bit more suspicious, I think. I think that to me would be like a, you know, what'd you do that for? Especially since I know Kimbo doesn't have any heel hook defense, except to just turn, turn and that can get you into even worse positions. But the rear naked choke is something he's never been particularly good at. Um, and at 51 and not having trained the ground in years, I don't think what he did was particularly uncommon, particularly with the hand position here. If your hand position is bad here, your hand position up here is going to be bad. They're both connected. So you have to be up here to get, right? You can't you can't cut as far back if your hand is low. And, and so that's sort of why he did it. Also, I think in the heat of the moment, maybe he didn't expect Kimbo to hand fight. Kimbo was hand fighting on the wrong side anyway. There's lots of factors that can go into it. But um, to me, none of it is particularly... Um, um, signals, uh, you know, felony. It signals to me two guys who are not particularly good, a guy who has a reputation as a good grappler, and he kind of is, but not as a back expert and definitely not as a rear naked choke guy at all. Um, sort of, I think, changing people's perspectives about about what his back control is supposed to look like. But that's just me. All right. Um, Chael. Someone says, Chael says, whoever leaked the training room info just cost Aldo $3.5 million. So Chael wrote that basically if, you know, Aldo could have taken the fight and lost but would have gotten a lot of money, you know, if he'd done a million of pay-per-view buys, he would have gotten about $3.5 million in revenue. Um, and because it's out now, um, he may lose the fight, and that so you lose the pay-per-view sales. I tend to think that no matter what, they're going to find a way to put these two together. And when they do, it'll sell. I don't know if it'll sell a million, but um, certainly it'll, it will uh, do, do well. But yes, the, 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 that, that is the problematic point here is that the news getting out ahead of the uh, inability to control the narrative uh, has, has changed the equation about the choices he's going to make a lot or the choices that the athletic commission is going to make. It's, it's, it's really problematic. Very. All right, so we're at the 2 o'clock moment. Let's move to the Twitter machine and see what we got here. Um, how many millions do you calculate the UFC might lose in Aldo McGregor fallout? Tens, hundreds? Well, not hundreds. Man. Um, I, I don't think 10 million is crazy at all, if not more. I really don't. I think it's that serious. Someone says, where do you rank Verdum historically after his win over Kane? He's tapped Fedor, Kane, and Big Nog. Quite impressive. Um, as I mentioned before, I don't have, I think the I think the inability for one guy in that division, uh, absent Fedor's run, but, you know, it was a different kind of era, to have sustained dominance. You know, Verdum has these high points, but he's also got these low points, and I think you have to, you have to average them out a little bit. Um, but if he can go back and he can, 
you know, beat uh, Arlovsky, if he can beat Dos Santos and he can do so, you know, handily, then I think he might be able to say, this is the run I needed to have that kind of dominance over the division to justify being the greatest ever. So he's not there yet. I'm not sure there is one. Maybe Fedor, depending on your perspective, I wouldn't argue too, too hard either way. But I guess I would just say that's kind of how I look at Verdum. He's he's close. No, no cigar yet. If the notorious uh, McGregor gets matched up with Edgar, I put some of my worldly possessions on Edgar. You do that. True or false? This week, this week's Bellator card is better than UFC Fight Night Saturday. It's got some good fights on it, but I actually haven't seen. This is how much I pay attention to these fight night cards. All right, so the main event is great and for sure better than anything on the Bellator card. Then you've got Pontanibio versus Larkin. That's pretty good, yeah. Um, Antonio Carlos Jr. versus Eddie Gordon. I don't care about that so much. Thiago Santos versus uh, the old hockey enforcer. That's okay. Hakron Diaz versus Levin Makash Vili. Um, I'll say this. The Bellator card has a couple of names I think more intriguing to MMA fans in Schilling and in Curran, but I don't know that the fights are as, you know, um, as high in quality. I think UFC's got a higher quality of fights, but maybe Bellator's got a little more, slightly more fan intrigue absent that main event. Main event is just a debate, really. So let's just be, let's just be real. All right, let's see. Um, Jacek's approach to takedown defense. I, as I was admiring Jacek's wreaking havoc this past Saturday, I found myself pondering her takedown defense, especially her use of elbows and knees. I feel like almost all the striking-based fighters I've seen just do the takedown defense without the additional punishment. Instead, just wait out the attempt, and they continue with strikes. Am I wrong in giving jo- uh, Joanna Champion and her camp undeserved credit on top of the all-deserved credit? Nope. Quite deserved. I was noticing the same thing. On a clinch break, I don't mean clinch here. I mean any kind of different clinch, double unders, you know, 50-50, Muay Thai, whatever. Any kind of clinch break, you are gonna you are gonna get lit up. It's just gonna happen. She was crushing Jessica Penny on the clinch break. It was brutal. Either with a shot to the body or an elbow over the top from either side. That was the hard part. You want to control one side, here comes the other. Um it was phenomenal. And I, I think what you're seeing is, look, I, I, I like Jessica Penny a lot. I have a tremendous amount of respect for her. You know, she's competing in a weight class that's not the best for her necessarily. And I think she's doing the best she can. So I, I deserves a lot of credit for that. Um, but, um, you know, wrestling is not necessarily her best strong suit. So I will say JJ benefited a little bit from that. But it's almost, I almost consider that a good thing because I believe her upside is so tremendous that I would rather her get this kind of experience now and make that part of the culture in which she defends takedowns so that when she gets the more serious takedown threats, and I know Aspars is a different takedown threat. Let me explain in just a second. It just becomes part of what she does. And she did it to Aspars a little bit too, although not as much. The reason why she wasn't able to do it is, here's why the penny fight was so important. 
Um, because Penny, I think, on the ground is obviously, you know, it, it, the question for me was, can Penny force Yinjacek to accommodate her jiu-jitsu? I didn't think she was going to be able to, and lo and behold, she wasn't. But what's interesting for me is that the fight took place here, right, against the fence, from the clinch. So, like, Penny obviously thought, you know, look, I can't shoot from the outside nearly as well as Esparza. Why bother? Let me punch my way in and get double underhooks to see what I can do. And a couple times she got kind of close, you know. I think strategically she didn't have the wrong idea, but strategy is one thing. Executing it is quite another. Um, and uh, it just wasn't it, it just wasn't there for her. It just wasn't there for. Her. So what my point being is, Jacek was able to circle Esparza on the outside and then stuff shots coming in. Now she's shown that if someone gets double underhooks on her, she has some formidable weapons as well. She's able to get her balance good. She can get up on top if she needs to. She can spread her base. She can find wizards when she needs to. And from wizards, she can find underhooks. And when she finds underhooks, look out. I said it on Twitter. Yo, if you want to be in tight with Ian Jacek, you need to either be level changing on her legs, like push her against the fence and then drop for a level right away, you know, because that way you force her to use both hands probably uh, if you're deep enough. Or you need to be ear to ear with her double underhooks, right? That way the punches, even if she punches you, she's just like rabbit punching you in the face. It's not going to do anything. Um, because if you have one underhook on her, she is going to light you on fire. She is going to light you on fire. She is going to burn you in effigy if you try that with her, uh, which is to me is just phenomenal. It's just phenomenal. I think on the men's side, you do get better wrestlers. So that changes the equation a little bit. You, you know, you see guys who have better technique and they have better, um, you know, they're just stronger. So it forces you to put two hands on them to stop them. But I think that, you know, the key for me will be to what extent can Yinjicek do this against Gedalia, who tried a similar clinch, you know, takedown uh, approach. Uh, although she, you know, incorporated level changing as well. I think that's the difference, right? She can go both levels. Um, but just the ability to like, I'm going to hurt you in every position. If we're standing at range, I'm going to hurt you. If I'm on top on the ground, I'm going to hurt you. You're not going to keep me underneath, so we can just discount that. If you have one underhook, I'm going to hurt you. If you have two underhooks, I'm going to get one underhook, and then I'm going to hurt you. It it, it, it really it will mess with an opponent's mind, if not outright hurt them and stop the fight. She's, she's a fireball, man. Someone's asking about Verdum's fight IQ and say he was watching his old fight um, with Hunt, with Gaslam, and talking about, um, you know, uh, showing Hunt fakes with his looks and then coming up with a flying knee. And then someone's asking, you know, does that make Verdum say he has high fight IQ? I won't say that's basic because it's not. We need to give Verdum the credit he deserves. But that's not particularly super-duper high level in terms of strategy. Getting... When you face anyone good in any sport, you have to fake them out. When two football players, when a, when a cornerback is trying to cover a wide receiver, the wide receiver has to show movement on a route, on a go route, on a wheel route, on something. He has to give him a fake to get the cornerback to bite so that he can go a different direction. Um, the quarterback, when he throws, has to look someone off with his eyes. Um, in in jujitsu. You want to set up your grips to make them do something because you're actually going to go the different way. You want to pass to one side because you actually want to pass to the other. You're waiting for reactions, and then you go the other way. It, you can't beat anyone good just like bulldozing them. 
right? Maybe Gabby Garcia can because she's got such a ridiculous size advantage. But for the rest of us, it doesn't work that way. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you have to fake it. You have to show a feint and then fake it. You gotta fake for the takedown and then punch him in the face. Fake takedown, you punch him in the face. Fake takedown, then go for the takedown. You gotta get him on a half step. Like all of these things require setup. So, like in that sense, it's not particularly novel. It's very, very hard to execute in that context. I think that's the more important part. But if you just ask me about that approach to the game, I would compliment him on the execution of the strategy, not so much on the brilliance of it. Um, okay. Let me do it one more time. Let's go. Let's go. Visa issues. Do you think being an employee versus independent contractor would help hinder obtaining a work visa and making fighting other countries easier? Um, I don't think it has anything to do with Brazil. I could be wrong. Maybe you can get a work visa easier. I know, for example, I've been I've been toying with the idea of going to Cuba, which I can do on a journalist visa pretty easily. Uh, so we'll see. But it's mostly just an issue between the U.S. and the Brazilian governments. They have a they don't have a long-standing history together necessarily even as say for example trade partners i mean they do some trading together but in the end they're not like you know not, it's, it's not most favored nation trading status and so there's just a bit of a um you know a disconnect between the two governments but you know for example if you i think if you're in colombia when my wife's colombia i think you can just go to brazil so it, it's i don't think that's i don't think that would solve the issue necessarily although it might you know it might from a regulatory standpoint make, make some of the hurdles easier I was asking if John Jones is back training. I am told he is back training, but it's not like hardcore training. It's just sort of like going to the gym and training a little bit and working out, you know, and, and you know, putting in the paces, but it's not, it's not fight camp training. It says Pendred's heart versus objective skill level. Luke, do you think Pendred is a classic example of hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard? Although he is 4-0, do you think he has the capability of improving his strikes dramatically to be competitive at the highest level? Or has he hit a natural talent skill level ceiling? Yeah, I think it's the latter. I mean, look, you know, I actually kind of feel bad for him a little bit. I mean, he doesn't need my pity. I don't, I don't, I don't mean that exactly. I just mean, you know, here's a guy who gave up all of his money for his last camp to make sure that he went out and did something right. He knew that in his third fight, I think it was the Sean Spencer fight, that you know, yeah, he won, and he is confident he won, but he's also pretty confident that he didn't show what he has to show. And, look, he is in the same camp as Conor McGregor, and I think he realizes if you can put in certain performances and say certain things and be a certain guy, there's all kinds of rewards out there. He can see it with his own eyes, you know, and I think he wants to be that, and I think he's genuinely putting in the work that he thinks is required to get there. I have no doubt about it. And he's making all kinds of financial sacrifices, uh, maybe even some he even shouldn't be making to get there, and yet still comes up on this. You know, When you watch him compete, I think he's got a ton of uh, grit. And um, you know, I, I don't mean this lightly. I don't think there's a lot of guys who have a, as, many, as much heart as Cole Pendrit. But you know, also, if we're just trying to speak as objectively as possible, there just seems to be a certain stiffness in the striking. The wrestling seems to be a little bit you know, reliant on the cage. Um, I haven't seen a whole lot of his jujitsu. Some of it on top seems okay, but nothing particularly to write home about. And so, you know, it's one of the things where was he brought to the UFC too early? Can he get much further? 
you know, like I said, I, I have I have been so wrong about Arlovsky that I do not want to be dismissive of someone's ability to turn things around or make improvements or become somebody that we think they can't be. But I would just say that there is also probably a justified concern about how far he can really take things. Biggest fight of the year for UFC. Let's say the following will all occur in 2015. Which do you think would be the best for pay-per-view buys, revenue, and marketing MMA? One, Cormier versus John Jones. Two, Cyborg versus Rousey. Aldo versus McGregor. Or Rockhold versus Weidman at Madison Square Garden. So definitely not the latter. And probably not the third one. Aldo McGregor could be bigger. But since neither is a proven mover in the pay-per-view space, I don't know. So it comes down to me between Cyborg and Rousey and Cormier and Jones. I would side with Cormier and John Jones just, again, because I don't know how many people would buy Rousey versus Cyborg. I'm sure it would be a lot. I'm sure it would be a huge financial success. But you're asking me which would do the best pay-per-view buys, not also good pay-per-view buys. I think a rematch between Cormier and John Jones with all the story going in and, you know, again, people's natural prejudices working those can work for you or against you and in the case of cormier versus jones they would work for you right to have and they're not heavyweights but light heavyweight jones is a pretty big start rossi might be bigger but um you know that jones cormier heat is kind of something special and it, certainly cyborg and rossi would produce all kinds of interesting moments maybe, maybe they would beat them you know i'm just guessing that um it wouldn't necessarily eclipse what the rematch would do but it's up for debate you know Michael Chandler versus Saad Awad. Uh, I would like to see it. Here's what I saw with Michael Chandler on Friday. He came out here, and within five or so exchanges, he was here. And what he was doing was, to me, you know, I don't want to say same old Michael because I don't think that's fair. And I like Chandler a lot. I think he's a smart dude. I think he's a hardworking dude. I think he's in a great camp. I think he's got a great coaching staff. And I think he knows what he needs to do to succeed. But I just wonder if when his competitive juices get flowing, he sort of falls back to what is more natural to him, um, which is understandable. But to me, it looked like he was beating Derek Campos on speed. In person, when he was throwing those shots early, the single shots, they were connecting before Campos was even reacting. It wasn't like Campos was like, I can see it. I'm just going to like roll with it a little bit. You talk to a lot of boxers. They'll tell you, even if you see a punch coming, if you can just roll with it a little bit, then it'll have, it'll, you know, dramatically lessen the impact of the shot. Maybe you didn't get a hand up to block it, but you got just enough to kind of time it and roll with it and, and mitigate the impact. Campos couldn't do that. He was just getting crunched every time, man. It's crazy. So I think once he saw that, it went from here to here. And he was just trying to beat him to the punch, quite literally. You know, I just don't know that's going to work against someone like Will Brooks. Um, I, you know, I don't know. So to me, a Saad Awad fight might be good in that way because I think ultimately Awad would succumb to Chandler's takedown pressure. But I wonder what it would look like because Awad's got good hand speed too. And if Chandler wanted to test himself there, it would be a good. Uh, case study in what maybe to do because remember Awad beat Brooks the first time they fought too about what to do in the second you know face with someone who can match your hand speed
Jesus. I need to listen to Fighter and the Kid more, huh? On a recent Fighter and the Kid podcast, Brendan Schaub said the last time he had seen a figure on the revenue share between fighters and the UFC was about two years ago, and that figure at the time was about 7%. If that is true, (laughs) that is crazy if that's true. Someone says, that seems crazy to me considering the major sports leagues like to compare itself to have around 45 to 55. Yeah, and most of your sports leagues is about half. Right, like that new NBA deal. You see, I told you I'll talk about this in the beat. On that new NBA deal, which is like, you know, how much is that new NBA deal? It's like, uh, I want to get the figure right. It's like crazy. So it's so expensive. Okay, here's the NBA deal. Ready? Twenty-four billion, nine year, and. And the and the athletes get half of that. They're gonna get paid. They're gonna get paid. Isn't that crazy? I get that they are completely different business models, but what do you think would be a fair number? Fifty percent. Easy to answer that question. Luke, do you think Dan Henderson will should sign with Bellator after his contract expires? So as I understand it, he has two more fights. We'll see how it goes, man. Like I said, wrong about Arlovsky, wrong about Hendo on Boach. Not that I'm saying, you know, you can reverse father time, but you never know what's happening in a fighter's life or training or in their body. And certainly he is older, but let's see how he looks. If he still looks fresh after two fights, I wouldn't have much of an issue with him signing with Bellator. If he looks decrepit and shopworn, I would have a serious issue with it. Someone asking about Dave Allen leaving his post in the UFC. This is the guy in charge of Europe, Middle East, and uh, Africa who took the spot that Gary Cook had before Gary Cook became sort of the global officer. Someone's asking any info on what happened. I do not. This seems to have taken everyone by surprise. I never worked with him directly, but I think Ariel uh, was tweeting that, you know, every time he interacted, he'd been pleasant, easy to work with. I think he even called it a pleasure. Um, And there are guys like that in UFC, like Chris Costello is one of their PR guys. Uh, He's great, man. He's great. It would be, it would be a real bummer if he, if he stopped working there. Um, but uh, I, I didn't know Dave Allen, and this is all very surprising, right? And, and it looked like he had been part of a major success. I think the only thing that would have been problematic in his run would have been the UFC support of um, the Euro Championships and the Euro Championships getting canceled as a result. But, you know, can you really blame him for that? I don't think you can blame him for that. He's trying to do something like, I'm trying to bridge the divide between these two worlds. It makes sense if you're the UFC to want to, you know, uh, have some exposure in those European championships to potentially recruit judoka who are interested in, in converting to mixed martial arts. Um, so I don't blame him for that. But, I mean, if you look at things that went, like, wrong during his tenure, maybe that's it. But that seems like if they were going to do something about that, they'd have done something back then. And it's not even his fault. It's just just, just not. So I, I don't know. I really don't know what happened. It all, it's just weird, though. Like, when people leave the UFC, man, they just leave. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Mike Merch, left. Burt Watson, left. Uh, Dave Allen, left. Uh, it's crazy. Will Aldo's drug test results come out if the fight is canceled? 
Yes. All right. Some UFC fans think they're Dana White or Lorenzo Fertitta. I'm tired of reading fans talking about the UFC, the money I spent, and blah, blah, blah. I'm interested in the sport, not in the business. The risk is part of any business, and that's not my problem. I only read it because it has three recommendations. So it says referees and judges should go under the same drug testing procedures as fighters. Why? Luke, it's my opinion that judges and referees should undergo the same testing as the fighters. The referee's performance is critical to protecting the fighters as well as making critical second-to-second -second decisions. Judges should have the mental wherewithal to judge a fight correctly, which ultimately decides the destiny of the fighters competing. Is it completely out of the question that a referee has stepped into the cage tipsy and otherwise impaired? Um, I'm sure, statistically speaking, it's happened. It's not a pervasive issue. And why would you care? Why would I... I I wouldn't care if a referee was on steroids at all. At all. Are you kidding me? Uh, any inside stories from Bellator you can share? Who was the most interesting interview and took you by surprise? I had the most fun talking to Scott Coker. Uh, Kimbo took me by surprise a bit, actually. Um, he was very friendly. Very friendly. So that was fun. Uh, so I was asking about MMA in New York. In your opinion, is the deck so stacked against the fighters at this point? Should New York maybe hold out on improving MMA until things improve for the fighters? I, I guess. So it says Ben Askren, Luis Santos rematch. Luke, uh, do you have any news on when Ben Askren and Luis Santos rematch will be scheduled? No, but we'll have that story out probably right after this chat. Ryan Hall, Luke, your colleague Ariel Hawani reported Ryan Hall had tried out for the recent Ultimate Fighter Trials a month ago. Can you tell us if he made it through to the show? I can't. I was supposed to text him before the show and did not. I know he's back at 50-50 now, but it's been a while, so um, I don't know. Someone says Ryan Hall signed to Titan FC two years ago. Hasn't had a fight since last May. He's not even competing in ADCC or the upcoming EBI. Why is he having this hiatus? Well, he's done with jiu-jitsu. I think he would take uh, a super fight, you know? He was supposed to do uh, the second Metamorphosis opposite, um, God, who's the kid? The one who almost beat Cyborg in the gi. Um, Cyborg Abreu. His name escapes me now. And then he got injured. Remember, I did, I did a whole interview series with him. Uh, but he, I think the issue of trying out the Ultimate Fighter was... Um, from my understanding, Ron Hall was trouble having fights booked for him. They just they weren't keeping him busy, and there was an out in his contract from a, from a clause that said, you know, if you can go to the UFC, we'll let you out. So he's just like, well, let's see what happens.
Michael Chandler entrance. It was pretty darn cool with the double arch and the video montage. Was it cool live? It was cool live. Took me by surprise, too, when they had that cityscape. Those screens are like 20 by 13, and they're 4K televisions, like the ultra-high def. When you see them in person, I know some folks are like, well, it's a little too WWE for me. I don't watch WWE, but I know that they use something relatively similar. But I think when I watched Bellator, my, my general takeaway was I would not want UFC to do these things. I would want UFC to do things the way that they do them. But I think that it's the uh, it seems to be the appropriate pivot away from them. Uh, and it creates a different alternative. They were just doing the same things and being UFC light. I don't know if that would really work for me. But yeah, those screens are tremendous in person, man. They're crazy when you see them. Uh, why are so many big camps based in such high cost of living areas and at very low altitude? To me, it seems they could benefit greatly from training somewhere cheap and at a decent altitude. Well, first of all, it's not true. American top team is in Coconut Creek. Uh, I mean, Boca Raton's expensive, but there are areas there that are very affordable. King Mo left, aka, to go to ATT for that very reason. Albuquerque is not particularly expensive relative to, say, other places. Now, yes, you have places like TriStar in Montreal. You have places like AKA and uh, San Jose. These can be expensive, but um, it's not the case that there's so many camps uh, in that particular sense. Second, people just can't uproot their lives, and people don't didn't necessarily think to go to um, high altitude because they didn't know how much of a necessity it would be. There are some camps in Denver you can go to. Um, people started camps where their lives were. Folks sometimes lose sight of the fact that this is still on some level martial arts and martial arts is a lot about community and roots and people, you know, and, uh, you know, just leaving to go to high altitude. I mean, conceptually that makes sense, but in real terms it would be bizarre. Why do you purchase drinks you hate? I don't know. It's just what I do. Uh, Luke, how come you haven't gone on a rant about how bad this fight was? Because it was bad. Do I need to go on a rant? Everyone who saw it knows it's bad. And how bad Bellator are for putting it on. Well, because I don't. You guys, man, maybe you're new to the sport or newer, or you don't remember like all the things I said when Elite XC was trying it. I hated it. Hated it. Thought it was... Uh, you know, I was okay with the UFC trying it because, remember, they put him through the Ultimate Fighter first. They gave him a couple of fights, and that was that. And, um, you know, they got ratings out of it all on the Ultimate Fighter. They got ratings out of him on Fight Night. And I think he was on one pay-per-view, right? So they, they, they got, and, they, and you know, the Roy Nelson fight on, um, on, uh, on the Ultimate Fighter. Like, they got, they got a full use of him, but they had sort of, like, you know, made it palatable by putting him through the feeder system first. Sort of made it a little more legit. And then once he lost, they just let him go, you know. Um, but when he was through Elite XC, like I remember watching the fight with Petrozelli and I was like so happy when he lost, you know. Because I was like, this is terrible for MMA. And you can certainly make an argument that after the fact about what happened with Petrozelli and being paid to stand and all that and the Dana White rant that came after it, that maybe there, there was something to be said for that particular element of it being bad. But I think in the end, one of the arguments I've just had to learn to accept being wrong about is that in moderation, 
and as an alternative to the UFC, things like Slice versus Shamrock and Bellator putting it on, they're not bad for the sport. It's just not. And that is not something I would have believed six or seven years ago, but I had to see it play out in real time to see how wrong I was about it. These, these like pronouncements of impending doom and destruction of purity and all these things, they sound good in your head. And I used to believe them, but then when the dust settles and none of that stuff ever comes true, you're just like, well, how real were these arguments to begin with? They feel real, but they're just not. They're just not. Now, if they go out there and then, you know, there are limits to things, right? Um, if they go out there and they have 10 more fights with Kimbo, that could be problematic. But I think as long as the UFC is in power and they don't do stuff like that, and, you know, the CM Punk thing I think will be, like, you know, who, who knows when he's going to fight and how often. I don't, I don't consider it to be – it's the same kind of thing, but not really the same um, – you know, won't have the same effect. I doubt he'll headline a card, you know. But the truth is, in moderation, you know, you don't have to like it. It works. It works. And I think it says more about what most people, not you or I, view MMA as when, you know, you've got Yuri and Jacek fighting Jessica Penny on Fight Pass, and the fight is like this, like everything you could possibly want out of a champion and a fight and no one sees it. And then, you know, Coker said in my interview, yeah, a lot of people do want to see one versus two. A lot of people don't care. People know Kimbo slice sucks at this point and they just, you know, or sucks is the word. Uh, he could beat up me and you, uh, and, and some other fighters, but they just want to see him because they like him and they like him. It's a figure that they know. And I think if you don't like that kind of thing, I would never ask you to like it. If you hate that thing, go on and hate it. If you want to speak out against it, by all means do so. I will never, ever, ever stand in your way that you don't want to see this from Bellator and you don't want to see this in MMA and you don't want to have to be, you know, have it mixed with your Pitbulls and your Currens and your Strausses and your Chandlers and everybody else. Cool, man. I will never stand in your way. But in moderation, if you want to make the argument that this is bad for the sport, you're going to go on the same journey I did. And you're going to wind up in the same position. Handled appropriately, and we'll see if that happens, but handled appropriately, it's actually good. It's a tough argument and a tough pill to swallow, but it's where we find ourselves. Okay, I have to go. I want to thank everyone for watching. I appreciate your patronage. You may follow me on Twitter, at SBN Luke Thomas. Man, I've been leaning back the whole time. Uh, you may get at me on uh, Facebook, facebook.com slash Luke T sports. We'll have coverage of Bellator. We'll have coverage of USC fight night 70 and a whole bunch of other stuff going on today. So until next time, thank you for watching. I appreciate it. Give this video a thumbs up and stay frosty.